This is our text for today. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. It says, In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And this is the new bit. This is the word of the Lord. Cool. For some of you, that is like as routine as the day is long. Um, Okay, so we've been looking at 1 Timothy. Tonight, we're going to look at the deacons. And in particular, we're going to look at it through this idea of church government and structure, or at least that's where a lot of people want to look. But here's the bad news. This is Luke Timothy Johnson. He says in his commentary, how little really we learn. Paul devotes three sentences to the supervisor, one to female helpers, and four to male helpers. Those terms, supervisor and helpers, is his use of uh, overseers and deacons. We learn nothing specific about their tasks We are forced to rely on analogy and inference for the few surmises we have made concerning their functions. Neither do the instructions inform us of the relationship among the positions. How is the supervisor related to the board of elders or to the deacons? We are not told. If you're looking at 1 Timothy strictly as a guide to order church government and church structure, it lacks something. It doesn't fill in all the details. This this is why we have some church structures that have a bishop who oversees a whole region. We have some church structures that have elders that that rule together, not one person um, whose voice counts more than other people. We have some churches that has a pastor CEO model where whatever that pastor says goes, whether or not they talk to anybody about it. So we have people that are dealing with the text and they're reading them in very, very different ways. and I think that we have to conclude here with, along with Luke Timothy Johnson, we don't really know there's just how little really we are, we are told from this one. So what we have to do in, in most cases is rely on experience. I don't know if the word deacon connotes anything to you and in your church experience. Show me a, a hand if you've heard of or had deacons around you at some, any length of time. Okay, for me, uh, I didn't grow up with deacons. Deacons were instituted at my family's church when I was maybe, I don't know, 15 or so. Um, And how it it worked, it kind of worked like this. This is Mad Men. This is like a boardroom. And all of the deacons would go and they would meet and they would sit around the table and they would talk about things. There's one problem with this, though. There's no Joan and there's no Dr. Faye Miller. Why? Because they're women, right? In the, in the church that I grew up in, I don't think that this would have, would have happened. So we had this board of what I would describe as the good old boys. The guys that kind of uh, ruled the roost, flexed their muscles a little bit, um, and did, did the hard work of, of running a church, I guess you could say. In other churches, the deacons look like this. Again, men, perhaps, and not necessarily fishermen, but if there's a project that needs to be done, the deacons will take care of it. If the bushes need to be 
clipped and trimmed, the deacons will take care of it. If somebody needs a meal, the deacons will get their wives to take care of it. <laughs> if, if the toilets are overflowing, like whatever, like we have the deacons who become, uh, in a sense, the supers of the church and the church building. Okay, so they, they kind of operate like this. I don't have a, a slide for some people who grew up in churches where it wasn't just men doing all the stuff. For some churches, deacons is not uh, limited by gender, but we have other folks that are kind of involved, whether they be at the boardroom table or they be doing the hard work. And some churches, deacons are equivalent to ushers. <laughs> See what I did there? Huh? Huh? Less talented ushers, of course, can't sing and dance like Usher. Um, side note, you can date yourself by, uh, in a couple ways, for the 30 and over crowd, you can date yourself by saying, what was the first CD that you ever owned? Um, the first, one of the first CDs that I ever owned was Usher, You Make Me Wanna, <laughs> CD single, popped that thing into my Camaro, rolled the windows down, driving around like, yeah, ladies, yeah. Okay, too much. I went too far. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bring it back. But in some churches, the deacons aren't the people that clip the hedges, but they're the people that stand in the back and can help you find a seat. They're like the usher folks. So people have different ideas of what deacons do, but again, those are all sort of the questions, or at least the questions that Paul is not addressing. He doesn't tell you what deacons do. He tells you who the deacons are. He's looking at their character. The qualifications that he gives doesn't say, okay, when you're clipping the hedges, make sure that you're above reproach. It's, it's not where he's going. He just launches into what type of person can fulfill these roles. Also note this too. Uh, I talked about it briefly last week. With regard to the overseer and the deacons, Neither one of these roles, according to Paul, in this context, appear to be one um, where you, the sky rips open and God says to you, you need to be a deacon and I am calling you to be that. It's people with certain giftings and abilities who are stepping into those roles, not for the sake of power, but because, um, because of a love for the church and the church body and because they have gifts and abilities that can help to get this thing going. As a very, very young church, I would implore you to begin to think through your calling, to begin to think through your participation in things here, to begin to think through um, your role within the kingdom of God. Some of you are sitting on some of the most beautiful talents and gifts some of you are scared to death to step out in faith and begin to use those. Some of you don't believe that you have an opportunity to use those. Um, begin that dialogue with the people around you, with God, with us. Like we would love to see you guys flourish um, and to, if, if, if the shoe fits, to, to kind of step into some of these, these roles here. What's gonna happen tonight? I'm just gonna go through these few verses and just call out some things that I think are interesting and um, beneficial for how we read this. Again, try not to read it as, oh, that's what those people do. Try to read this as, how do I maybe fit into this 
at least from the perspective of how can I take these characteristics and apply them because they're absolutely beautiful characteristics that Christians should be striving after. So here we see, in the same way, Paul linking this discussion with the previous discussion about overseers, in the same way, deacons. This word here has an overtone of servants. Paul uses this word in a technical sense, but he also uses it from time to time in a not-so-technical sense where it's calling all people to be servants. Just like Jesus in the upper room washing people's feet, we are called to be there for folks in whatever situations that they're going through, however uncomfortable that might make us feel at times, we're called to be Jesus' hands and feet. And he goes on to say at times, like the people that just give folks a cup of cold water are the ones who are doing the work. So understand that there's this overtones of servanthood. They are to be uh, worthy of respect. In other words, you could say they're supposed to be dignified or serious-minded. Tell me the first thing that pops your head when I say, oh, you're very serious-minded. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Why? <laughs> Boring. Boring, no fun, got your shirt tucked in real tight, got to play by the rules, everything's kind of prim and proper. So a lot of people might see this in that, and a lot of people might see that in their past experience with deacons. That's who they were. But here, Paul's not saying they're supposed to be fuddy-duddies, but they're supposed to be dignified and able to have hard conversations, able to steer things away from joking and not serious stuff. I imagine they're able to cut loose a bit and have some fun, not too much fun, as we'll see in the bit about wine, but they're, they're able to have some fun, but they're at least able to steer things back to what's truly and utterly important. I think this is a beautiful thing for students to have in their minds because when you walk down the halls of your high school or of your college, there's a lot of foolishness going on which could be fun, but at times it's good to, to steer conversations back to um, how are you doing? No, 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 no. I, I know you said fine, but like, no, really, how are you doing? Like, are you able to handle what's going on? Um, a lot of students bring with them the baggage of death, divorce, tragedy, brokenness, um, bullying, like all, either being the one that bullies or being the, the one that gets bullied. In, in both of these contexts, there's things that are going on underneath the surface, and I think it's important for us to break through some of those things as well. For the older folks in the room that might take some people out to coffee or invite people over for dinner, I think this is a beautiful way to model some of this, to be able to steer some of those conversations away from the surface stuff and to get down into it. There's one thing that I hear from a lot of people is, um, oh, that relationship is really surfacey, And they say that as it's a, it's a bad thing. Break through. Allow yourself to get beyond the surface stuff to see who people really are and how you can be a servant to them. That's a two-way street, though, by the way. I think it's important because some people are ridiculously difficult to get anything out of them, yet they're trying to plumb the depths of who you are as a person, but they won't open themselves up at all. Allow yourself to be vulnerable uh, and model that for people. But these folks are, are worthy of respect. They're dignified. They're serious-minded. They have a high esteem in, in the minds of, of the people around them. That's not it. Um, it says, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, dignified. They're serious-minded. They're also to be uh, sincere. This text here, um, that word sincere literally means um, 
not of two words. They're not double worded. They're not duplicitous. They're not the sort of people who say one thing today and another tomorrow. They're not the type of people that are either going to try to get one over on you or they're not the type of people that have conversations with you and then totally forget what happens and then go about and do something completely contrary to what they said um, before. There's a tendency uh, for some folks who are of the people-pleasing variety um, to just say yes all the time. You know that your Tuesday is filled up with whatever. And somebody says, you want to come over on Tuesday? Yeah, sure. But there's not enough hours in the day for them to to make good on that. And here, um, that's a pretty tame example of this, but the, the deacons are supposed to be ones where they say something and their word is, in a sense, their bond and they actually follow through with it. Learn how to be a person of your word. Learn how to be someone who doesn't just talk out of both sides of your mouth. Don't be the type of person that will say the things to please the people that you're immediately in front of. Learn how to be honest with folks and have those hard conversations. Be sincere. Don't be double-worded. Don't be duplicitous. Don't try to get things over on people. Also, it says uh, the deacons are not to indulge in much wine. In uh, earlier bits of this chapter with regard to the overseers, they are to not be drunkards or not addicted to wine. And here it says... Uh, these folks are not to be indulging in much wine. What's the takeaway from that line? Does he want me to say that? Does he, does he really want? Does, does he? What? What? What's the, the key word there is, is much. So what's, what's Paul's implication in this text? Yeah. Um, N.T. Wright says, Paul doesn't say that office bearers shouldn't drink alcohol, but he is quite clear that they should know when to stop, which as experience shows, frequently means one drink before you think you should. I bet you didn't think you'd come to church tonight and get drinking advice, either from me or Paul or N.T. Wright. Okay? But I think that within the Christian community, there's these pockets of of conversations that happen, uh, and they're fueled in Legalism. I'm going to give you the two sides of this, so just stick with me if this is make you uncomfortable. Some people are so governed by the rules of the road that everything that pushes the bounds is automatically viewed as wrong. It doesn't seem as though there's any warrant within Scripture that says a drop of alcohol is sin always and forever. For some of you, hear me say this, for some of you, you've seen what that does to families. You've seen what that did to your family. You've seen what that could do to the people that you love and you avoid it at all costs. There is nothing wrong with that. But to import that belief onto the masses at times is inappropriate. Paul's giving instructions to the church leaders and not calling them on stuff. Now also, there's a difference in cultural context here because it's easy for us to go to our sink, turn on the tap water, and drink some, some fresh, clean, safe, at least, drinking water. In the first century, that was not always the case. So the undertone could be here, um, wine is the most accessible, safe beverage that you can have. Don't mess around with the stagnant, gross water because you might die from drinking it. So have some of this instead. Um, 
I also want to go one step farther because some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, great, preach it. Let's go have a pint, okay? Um, or a nice glass of Pinot, as the case might be. Um, some of you like to pride yourselves on Christian liberties. I'm saved. Jesus loves me. Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Therefore, I can do whatever I want to do. I think in conversations like that, we've totally missed the focus of the Bible. Yes, uh, we are free in Christ, but that doesn't mean that we then go on to make terribly uh, bad decisions, and it doesn't mean that we toe the line of, of what's good and what's bad. I'll go here. You ready? I will take you there. Okay, back in high school, one of the most important and often asked questions for a teenager in a youth group setting that has a boyfriend or girlfriend, they will say, how far is too far? Yes, I'm, yes. Are we okay? Can we talk about that? In that moment, you know, something's not right. These people just want to know where that line is so that they can go and hang out right there and get away with whatever they can get away with in the most Christ-honoring way. You know what I mean? And sometimes we just try to find where that line is and hang out right next to it. Sometimes fall over and say, oh, Jesus will forgive me. And sometimes we'll just hang out right here. And I think when we do that, we're missing the force of the scripture and we're missing the force of, of this kind of stuff. This is not um, Paul trying to say, Hang out right on that line where if you're at your second and a half glass, just cut yourself off there. But anything, you know, before or after, it, he's not trying to push us there, but trying to say that this person is not one who is known for indulging in much wine. They're not drunkards. They're not addicted to things. There's not things that hold them captive. And in our society and in our context even here, if we're honest, there are many things that have kept us in the past and maybe even currently. Whether that's uh, drinking, whether that's um, overeating, whether that's sexual stuff, whether that's um, wasting time and just not being a good steward. There's, there's things that, that we do that have a hold on us and the patterns in our life and it's difficult for us to, to break through those. And sometimes it might not be the alcohol that you're struggling with, but it might be all these other things that you're struggling with that have a hold on who you are. And I think that what Paul's trying to say is don't let there be those things that have the grasp on you where you can't break free. So these folks are worthy of respect. They're sincere. They're not indulging in much wine. I think the undertone is they're, they're not given to addictions. Um, and they're also not pursuing dishonest gain. This is important because the deacons seemingly in the early church were ones who would go about the distribution of food or as we'll see in chapter five, like the care of widows. These folks seem to have some money going through their hands or some, um, some stuff that they could hand out uh, and if they were known for pursuing dishonest gain or trying to hoodwink people or whatever, then they, they don't fit the bill of, of what's going on here. Further, they must keep hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And this is where we go from um, what is actually fueling these motivations and this code of ethics that they have here. Why are they sincere? Why are they people of their word? Why aren't they given too much wine? It's because they have um, a hold of the mystery of the faith. Uh, 
One guy says the servant's character is forged by Christian faith for the work of securing the congregation's faith and life together. These deacons are not just clipping hedges. They're not just fixing things when they go wrong. They are fighting for the faith of the people in this room. They are fighting for the faith of the people within their community. So when people are going through marriage problems, financial issues, um, struggles with doubt, just wanting to give up, they're there not to um, convince them that they're wrong, but to, to be there to serve them and to demonstrate the beauty that is this, this faith. It says the servant is less interested in the community's external affairs like the overseer was. They're more attentive to the spiritual formation of believers. This is, I think, a great model for leaders within the church to be ones who are fighting for your faith. It is certainly one that we here at this church want to, to exemplify. We don't take this calling or this job lightly. So when we send you texts to check up on you, when we have conversations where we're asking you hard questions, it's not because we want to get all up in your biz. It's because we want to be people that are walking with you in this journey of faith. And if we've failed you in that, talk to us. This is not something that, that we want to just uh, avoid. We want to care and um, demonstrate this concern for your spiritual formation. The question then becomes, what is this mystery of the faith? In a simple phrase or series of phrases, we can go to the very mission of this church. This mystery that Paul's referring to is God is restoring people, relationships, and all creation through Christ. This mystery is the gospel. The mystery that these people are holding on to and that has radically changed and transformed them is this reality that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus' death and resurrection have some sort of payoff for us as individuals, that his work isn't just about me and you, but his work is about bringing the whole world into right relationship with the Father. So this, this thing here is what's fueling them. And again, we could go ask this very basic question. Um, for the folks in the room that claim to be following Jesus, has it transformed you? Has it changed you? Maybe better, is it changing you? Is it transforming you? Or are we just stuck in the same rut where we've been for months, maybe years, just the traditions that we have where this is a part of, of who we are? Has that mystery of the gospel been something that we are holding on to with everything that we have? Or is it something that we just kind of hold on to and then we have a big question and we walk away? We go back to it, we hold on to it, and then something happens and we walk away. Like, is, is that kind of where we are uh, as people? How is it that we're holding on to this, this gospel? Paul clarifies what he's talking about in Romans 16. It says, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message that I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. This mystery that's been hidden is Christ who has appeared, who has done ridiculous things during his time on earth, has died and has resurrected um, for us and not only for us, but for transformation of, of the whole world. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the mystery about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. These deacons are 
held captive by the idea of Jesus. It was something that completely transformed who they are. Yet we, by and large, become complacent. We become jaded. We become callous. We don't see things working in the way that we think it should be working. We walk away. Um, This idea here of, of Christ is not one, I would argue that in a lot of cases, it hasn't radically shaped who we are as people. Um, Continuing on, this group of deacons, they must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So this group of people, it wasn't just, oh, they look pretty good, Uh, looks like they're okay, it was they actually go through certain things, whether that's they given, are given a task, who knows? We're not given much here to go on, but it's not just dude shows up or lady shows up and you say, this is going to work out pretty good. Become a deacon. Become one who fights for the spiritual formation of the community. Become one who is in this position of care and concern for people. Before that happens, Paul says, test them. And if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, which is the same word that's used to describe um, deacons earlier in this passage. They're not to be malicious talkers, but temperate, which is the same word used for the overseers. And then they're trustworthy in, every, uh, in everything. The problem with this line, who are the women? We don't know. He doesn't necessarily say the women who are deacons. Some people have inferred from this that it's the, the, the wives of the deacons. Other people would say, well, actually Paul goes on to talk about deaconesses in Romans. So there's other people, women in particular, who were operating in this capacity. So it could be referring to them. And I kind of think personally that, that that's the right direction. So here it seems that there's this group of, of women who might be qualified to be deacons as well. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. That and his household is different from the overseers. So it seems like the deacons are being pushed not just to manage children well, but to manage the whole entire household well. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe their hedges are clipped very, very nice throughout the spring and summer seasons. Um, we, we don't know, but it seems like the deacons are held to uh, more administrative roles at home. And if they're ones that are guarding spiritual formation in the church, they're probably also guarding spiritual formation at home as well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. There's two points of application with all this stuff. I know, I can sense, I have a pulse on the room here. It seems as though we are tired. It seems as though the sounds of my raspy, honey-laden voice is soothing you right into the point of sleepiness, okay? Um, There's two points of application. If you hear nothing else, hear this. For us, meaning for the Restoration Project, the way that we apply this text We, the leaders, are passionate about your spiritual formation. We are passionate about 
who you are as individuals chasing after Jesus at whatever stage in the game you are. For some of you, you haven't really even gotten on the road, so to speak. You still have questions. You still have all these sorts of things. You have experiences where you haven't seen the things that we talk about happen in your life and you don't buy it. Others of you have been on this road called Christianity your entire life and you haven't seen it either. You've just kind of been mindlessly walking about hearing things that I say or your parents say or your pastor says or your Bible teacher or whoever says and you don't experience it, which has led you to, whether you know it or not, jadedness, callousness. You're just in this rut of traditionalism where you're wanting nothing more than for Jesus himself to descend and say, hey, 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 let's go hang out. That would be the greatest moment in your life. And I think it'd be a pretty good one too. Um, but there's, it doesn't seem like prayers get answered. It doesn't seem like the things that we talk about actually happen in real life. And you've got walls built up. For some of you, um, you're doing it. You're living it. This isn't just a game for you. And it's not just something that you do in the, con- in the confines of your house or in that, your prayer closet. It's something that you actually take out to the streets and you're impacting people's lives around you. We've seen that. We've um, witnessed your passion and we've been inspired by it. But like for us as a, as a leadership group, understand that we take this call to care for your souls really stinking seriously. And if there's any ways that we could be pushed towards that um, with more diligence and please talk to us but in the meantime we're going to try to guide ourselves by these principles in uh, 1 Timothy 3 1 through 13 where we're to be a people above reproach where we're to be people who are gentle and um, temperate and self-controlled and not the crazy angry person that is on the highway that's wanting to run people off the road sorry um, we are people that will fight for your spiritual formation. The application for you is do not be so deceived that your job is just to sit there and watch us do it. I don't think that's the message that Paul's giving to people here. It's not just this select group of of folks are the ones that actually get it. Everyone in the community should be striving to be these sorts of people. So as you sit here, you can self-reflect, and I hope this isn't in a way that inspires legalism because that's not what we're about, but I want you to begin to ask yourselves these hard questions, especially if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Are you known to be above reproach by those that you work with or the the people on the outside, the people that live next door to you, the people that see you in the hallways of, of your school or that live on the same dorm as you, like, Do people see you as one who's above reproach and sincere and not double-minded? Do people see you in that light? Do people see you, or even beyond that, are you someone who is um, held down by the chains of addictions? And I don't want you to immediately go to sex, drugs, and alcohol because our Church context has usually labeled those as the only addictions. There could be other addictions to, to power or to uh, success or to um, overworking or to being a perfectionist. Like, there's all these sorts of things that, that hold people down. Are you known by that um, from people on the outside? But also, do you feel that? And then how is it that this mystery of the faith does it, is it something that you hold on to or is it something that just kind of is, 
is out there somewhere, something that you know and you've heard, or is it something that has grabbed your very soul, changed and transformed you and shaped you into the person that you are, into the, into the person that you are becoming? I think it's time that we stop settling, settling for less than what Jesus has called us to and settling for less than what we're maybe capable of and we begin to give ourselves to this idea of God restoring not just me, not just you, but everything. And we get to be a part of that. So we'll try to live this out. And our hope and our prayer is that you begin to fall in step uh, with us as well and live it out for yourselves.